And we do wish you a good morning. On this, our 35th anniversary as a church. And this is lesson 26, the relationship between the law, love, and the Lord Jesus. Yes, I changed my title again. Now, I want to walk you through these, uh, these first pictures that will come after this because uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about our history. So that starts us out at Believer's Chapel. Actually, it was before 1976, it was even before 1975 that we began to have discussions about starting a what we called the new work. When Believer's Chapel built that building, uh, they had purposed that it would uh, seat 350 people. And the, the decision was made that when we reached 350 people, we would start a new work. The second Sunday in that building, actually Stan Toussaint was the speaker on that Sunday. The second Sunday was overcrowded. And we went to two services, three services, and then four services, as you know, and there were roughly 2,000 people that would come and go during those uh, services. And it was recognized by everybody, including the elders of Believer's Chapel, that a new work was really needed. And I remember very well being uh, sort of uh, on the on the back row, but... Uh, of this, but but we had a meeting. Don Glenn was there, and Bill McRae was there, and we proposed starting a new work. We had a building selected. We were all ready to go, and we were sitting there in the parlor with the elders of Believer's Chapel making this grand proposal for the new work. And at the end, Dr. Johnson took us all by surprise, and he said, that is a wonderful plan. But it presupposes that I am going to be here at Believer's Chapel, and I am going to Europe. And so there was a way in which the balloon just slowly emptied, and it was probably a couple years after that that discussions again began, uh, and, and we started talking about a new work. And the elders were, were eager to see that, that new work begin. Actually, the elders asked me to preach a series on the New Testament church and to emphasize what would be unique or distinctive about what we as a church, uh, would be. And, uh, and so we did that. And on the Sunday that we started, they actually closed down one service uh, from four services to three, virtually squeezing some folks our way. So I'm not sure that I would call it a church plant as much as a, a, a transplant of a group of people. And, and, of course, some of you were there. We actually had planned to meet at a motel uh, or a hotel that was on the Central Expressway in about Park, and we had negotiated uh, uh, our meeting place and time and price and all that. And there was a sign that was up, and it said, Welcome Community Bible Chapel. But something changed the week before that. The Dallas Independent School District had a policy that they would not allow churches to use their school facilities. But the building uh, that we, uh, at Cabell Elementary, and you can go to that next shot if you will, the building at Cabell Elementary in Farmer's Branch was probably no more than 25% used. So there were empty classrooms and whatever. 
And the school district felt that it might look good to uh, rent out some of the, uh, the empty space. And so we actually began to meet at Cabell Elementary that first Sunday, even though the sign was up on Central Expressway. We had uh, classrooms that we used, and I think we met in the cafeteria initially and then eventually in the, in the auditorium. We met there for a year, and I think I put, you'll see it in your notes in a minute, that there were some doubts, because I think they would only actually make a contract with us for three months at a time. And and the the reality was they were not really eager to have us uh, there, but uh, when we would, uh, at that point, it looked like it was in their best interest to do so. But Every At the end of every three months, we had to renegotiate, and they weren't sure whether we would meet there. So we would literally say to people, if we're going to meet here, we'll let you know, and if we're going to meet somewhere else, we'll let you know during the week where we'll be next Sunday. That went on for a year. I don't have a picture of the next uh, building, but that was the Marriott uh, at uh, LBJ uh, between uh, uh, Hillcrest and Coit. And it was literally a stone's throw from Believer's Chapel. It was also less than a stone's throw to uh, to uh, Watermark uh, that is now located in that same basic area. And we began uh, there and then to look for places either to rent or to purchase. And actually, the fellows who were doing it uh, looked at over 200 uh, places. And it wasn't through any of the official channels. Somebody was working in the restaurant business, and they happened to be at a restaurant where the cook uh, shared that they were going to sell their building and buy a new one, and we then began to negotiate. And that's where we ended up at our, at our uh, next building there on Abrams Road. That's actually the, the scan of, of our church directory back yonder. And so for about 22 years or so, we met there at Abrams. You know that we added some additional space at the back. And uh, and then this uh, current building uh, came along, and we moved in in the spring of 2001. So uh, that's kind of our our history. But you'll notice on our on our windows up there on the on the stained glass window here it says if you've got good eyes, <laughs> loving God, loving my neighbor, and then in larger print on the side windows, that became our our sort of logo and our motto that we uh, adopted uh, fairly early on in our history as a church. And so it is, uh, isn't it kind of interesting and providential that at our 35th anniversary, we would come to probably the primary text that addresses those two issues, loving God, loving my neighbor. That's really the core of our text this morning. And it seems fitting to look at that in terms of connecting the dots, first of all, in terms of the argument that Mark has And secondly, connecting the dots with us in terms of what is it that we believe God has called us to do and how are we doing at loving him and loving our neighbor. So now we're going to have to drop down. Great. There we are. The sequence of events leading uh, up to the events of our text. You remember in chapter 1, the beginning, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, that we had the Lord's triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, proclaiming his authority. 
And then there was the cursing of the fig tree. I call that part one, where the fig tree is cursed uh, in, in Mark's account. Then there is the cleansing of the temple in verses 15 through 19 of uh, chapter 11. And then the cursing of the fig tree, part two, learning from a dead tree, which is what our Lord Jesus uh, does there. Then there is the question that is raised for all of the things that Jesus has been doing, and essentially the religious leaders are saying, just who do you think you are? What is your authority to be doing things like this triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple? And you remember Jesus then says, well, I have a question for you. And if you answer it, then I will answer yours. Whose authority was John operating under? What was his authority? Was it men or was it God? They could not find it in themselves to answer either way. And so... Jesus did not answer theirs. Jesus then told the parable of the vineyard, and they understood Jesus was talking about them. And remember, it's said in that parable, he will turn the vineyard over to others who will give him the proceeds from the fruits. Then they uh, come back with the question with the, uh, with the uh, Herodians, Shall we pay taxes to Caesar or not? They're in trouble with the crowds, but if they can somehow get Jesus in trouble with Rome, they're home free. And you remember that Jesus then says, Render to Caesar the things that belong to him. Render to God the things that belong to him. Another big oops for them. And then there is the question from the Sadducees. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection after these seven men have married her? Jesus again comes out far ahead of them. And so they are now coming to this question. What is the most important question of all? So let me make some observations, if we can about this text. Oh, I should mention to you, it's not in your notes. This is the, the, in our text, the statement that Jesus makes, you are not far from the kingdom of God, is actually the statement that was instrumental in the conversion of John Wesley. John Wesley was a scholar and a missionary who did not yet know Christ. And when he met some real genuine believers and came across this verse, he saw himself as somehow like the scribe who was asking the question and to whom Jesus was speaking. And it becomes at least a part of the picture uh, for his conversion. But when you look at this, you'll see that there is there is a significant change. There is a change of mood, of demeanor. There is not the open hostility and whatever that we've seen before. And, and so there are some favorable elements, but I think we have to qualify these. And, and I'll do that. As you can see, I have more to say about the unfavorable elements to follow. But the favorable element would be, here is a scribe that saw that Jesus had answered well. Here is a scribe who hears what Jesus is saying. He observes the argument that's going on, and he said, man, that was a good answer. Secondly, he comes to Jesus in the demeanor of one who is a seeker of truth and therefore is asking a question. And notice it doesn't seem to be an either or question 
where heads I win, tails you lose, but rather it is an open-ended question that doesn't presuppose the answer. In his response to Jesus' answer, he gives Jesus praise for a good answer. He does not refute Jesus. He commends him for his answer. And Jesus' response to him and his response is much more positive (laughs) than you see in some of the other confrontations. Would you not agree? Okay, that's the good part. Now, let's look at some other elements. This man is a scribe, and, and they are the epicenter of opposition to Jesus. They are always there. In the, in the challenges, they are there in the accusations against Jesus, and they are there in the leadership of those who will have Jesus put to death. They are the epicenter of opposition. And, and uh, it's interesting because I was looking at this, and I was wondering about Nicodemus. Nicodemus is not called a scribe. He is called a Pharisee, and he is referred to by Jesus as the teacher of Israel but he's not called a scribe. Now, I don't know whether he was a scribe or not. If he was a scribe, then he was not a typical scribe. (laughs) And obviously, he was the exception to the scribal rule. He's a scribe, an expert in the law. In Matthew's parallel account, it very clearly says that he asked the question to test Jesus. Now, a little uh, asterisk on that. The word test can be used in a positive way, but almost always in this confrontation section, it is used in the other way. It is used in the sense of trying to catch Jesus in his words, trying somehow to make Jesus look bad and to undermine his authority. Notice, too, that when this man says and observes that Jesus had answered well, he had answered a Sadducee well. Now, you understand that Pharisees and Sadducees are about this far apart. Would you not admit with me that there may be, for instance, just take the the political arena that's going on, you may have a particular political personality that you don't like. There may be somebody who makes a statement or asks a question or makes an accusation that you don't like either, but he says it so well that you feel good having watched it happen. So I'm saying, you could say in effect, hey, this is really done well. It doesn't necessarily mean you agree with them. It's just like, well done. As a matter of fact, in that story in Luke chapter 16 about the shrewd steward, Remember, who's going to lose his job and whatever, and he goes out and, and he, uh, he, he, he wisely uh, makes arrangements so that he is preparing, in a sense, for his retirement years. And, and the, the guy who, who is his boss basically says, man, he did a good job. Now, it's up for grabs whether he thinks he did the right thing, but whatever he did, he sure did it well. That may be something that we need to consider here. When you read the the scribe's response to Jesus, where he commends him, I don't know how you read it, folks, but I read that as condescending. Condescending. 
he says, first of all, to Jesus, he calls him teacher. Well, that's not exactly a promotion in terms of what he could have said, not master, whatever, teacher. Um, he, he comes across as somebody who is giving Jesus a grade on his final exam. You know, he's got the the paper, he's turned it back, but he's got all the red marks and whatever. And yeah, it's well done, but it's very clear. He's the professor. Jesus is the junior student. That's the way I read it. I, I, I can't really find any other way to read that. And then when you look at his praise, it's too wordy. There's too much scribe and too little Jesus. Now... I just counted the words in in the translation that I was using. His response to Jesus is 54 words. Jesus' answer to the question is 52 words. And in his response to Jesus, he finds it necessary to reiterate exactly what Jesus had already said, as though somehow it's more powerful when he says it, And then he adds an embellishment. This is better than all the sacrifices and whatever. It's not wrong, folks. It's just embellished. Why does this fellow find it necessary to say so much? And uh, in his his commendation of Jesus. And And if that doesn't do it for you, folks. When Jesus says to him, you're not far from the kingdom... (laughs) <laughs> I mean, doesn't that sort of chop the legs out from under this this arrogance and whatever? Here's the guy who's on top. Here's the guy looking down upon Jesus saying, not bad, not bad. And Jesus says, yeah, not bad for you either, but you're not there yet. These guys were the gatekeepers of heaven, folks. These guys were the ones who threw people out of the synagogue. And you're out of the synagogue, folks. You're out of the kingdom. So anyway, Jesus takes him down and says, and one more thing. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus gets to his next point in, in verse 35 and asks the question, he says, how is it that the scribes say? And then in verse 38, when he starts this indictment, granted it isn't 39 verses long like Matthew, but it's pointed, and he says, And in his teaching, he was saying, beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings and whatever. In other words, look out for pompous scribes. Hmm. That looks to me like a put down. So anyway, you have to read the story, I think, in the light of those observations. So what's the point of this interchange in the context of, uh, of Mark's gospel. And why ask this particular question? What is the greatest commandment of all? Notice it's not an either-or question. It's an open-ended question. So it's not one of those trap questions, shall we pay taxes to Caesar or not, where it looks like both answers are going to get you in trouble. It's an open-ended question. It seems friendly. And yet, it was a test in some sense. I'm taking my clue from uh, Luke chapter 20, verses 19 and 20. And it basically says that the scribes changed their approach. Now, remember, the scribes are the guys who are the first ones there and saying, by what authority are you doing these things? They come on hard and strong with Jesus. 
Now they've changed it to a sort of a softer approach. And now they're coming on and it says they basically are pretending to be friendly and whatever. But that's part of the, the sham. So it seems to me that their approach has changed. We're going to take a non-confrontational approach to Jesus and hope for the best. Their trap questions had only trapped them. They're hoping now for uh, a, a, a more um, perhaps a, a even unexpected thing. Now, think about this. The scribes were those who were the lawyers. And, and some, it depends on your translation. Some say it's the experts in the law. But in effect, let's call these guys religious lawyers. The reason why you needed a religious lawyer is the great complexity of the law. They kept adding commandments, and the story is that there are 613 commandments. So when you say to Jesus, which is the greatest, here's 613 to choose from. Well, that means 612 of them <laughs> are not going to be it. I wonder if this isn't something that they discussed, perhaps. But I think that they were hoping that what Jesus would say is, well, this is a rather complex, complicated question. You know, and, and, and to get Jesus, as it were, on the run, as opposed to him coming forthrightly with a quick a uh, pointed response uh, such as he gave. So it seems to me they hoped that Jesus would flounder with the question uh, and, and therefore embarrass himself in the process. Our Lord's answer is a unique linking of Deuteronomy chapter 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And, by the way, heart, soul, strength, mind isn't there. It is there in both Jesus' words and in the scribes' words. And it's just, I think, one more dimension. I don't want to make a whole lot of that, but that's the way it reads. He links Deuteronomy chapter 6 with Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You will love your neighbor as yourself. Those two now are brought together. Loving God is first. Loving your neighbor is second, but these two together are the summation of the Old Testament law. So I find it very interesting that Jesus works toward the summary part. See what I'm saying? He boils it down to that which is more simple. They're the guys, and I hate to say this, and I don't mean anything against any lawyer friend of mine, but lawyers do better when it's complicated. You don't call lawyers for simple things. You call them for complicated things that you don't know how to handle. And so they complicate the law, and then it's only them who can handle it. Whereas Jesus boils it down. So when you look, I think, at the book of Exodus, you have the, the Ten Commandments, which encompass, first four commandments are Godward, second, the, the second group of six are man-centered, but... Jesus boils the law down from 10 to 2. So you've got all of this extrapolation in Exodus that's giving examples of that, but you get the core of what it's all about, which really gives you insight into, into understanding the law. They go further and further, adding law upon law, complexity upon complexity, and it's great for business, among other things. So... 
That's the, that's the confrontation that I see. So here's the, the scribe's approval. No correction, just agreement, lengthy, embellished, condescending, which is a subtle claim to authority. If you have the right to grade Jesus' paper, then you're an authority over him. And I think that's the subtle claim that's being made here. We're the ones in charge. We're the accreditation group that looks on guys like you and gives our approval or not. So even approving of Jesus, they win. Do you see that? Even giving Jesus their approval, they win because they're the ones who have the right to approve. Now, Jesus' response then comes across favorably in the sense that it was a thoughtful response. You know, they were essentially in agreement in terms of what was said. But when Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom, he is reclaiming authority. It is not this scribe who is in authority over Jesus. It is Jesus who is in authority over him. And this gatekeeper has just been told he is not inside the gate. He is outside the gate and he is not there yet. He's moving in the right direction, but it is Jesus who establishes his authority in this, uh, even though maybe it's a polite one in this kind of confrontation. So what's the outcome? No more questions other than the question Jesus asks. (laughs) The question and answer period is over. And, And it seems to me it goes all the way from hostile, you know, by what authority are you doing these things, to friendly, I almost called this message friendly fire because it's sort of friendly, but it's still hoping, I think, to see Jesus caught up in a way that isn't advantageous to him. Question and answer period comes to an end, except for one final question by our Lord. And this is really a critical question. One, it puts them on the spot because they know what the scriptures teach, but they don't know how to handle it. I'm not even sure they thought about the answer. See, the real question is, what is Jesus' authority? And that all boils down to who does Jesus think that he is? If Jesus is God, and to my knowledge, in all this thing from the triumphal entry on, nobody is saying. Once you grant the fact that Jesus is God, you've entered a whole new level of discussion. And that's really what it boils down to. Who is Messiah? And if Messiah is God, then our love for him and our obedience to him is first and foremost. That means we must obey Jesus. So this is, this is serious stuff. So he says to them, In answer to their original question, what authority do you have? And he goes to John. Now he says to him, you guys are students of David. Uh, Who is the Messiah? He's David's son, son of David. How is it then, Jesus asks, that if David speaks of his son as his Lord, how can that possibly be? How can your son be your Lord? Nobody has the answer to this, folks, thus far, disciples included. But the answer for us is simple. 
The only way that you can answer that dilemma is to say Jesus is both human and divine. He is both man and God. Once you come to that conclusion, you've answered the dilemma, and once you've concluded that Jesus is God and man, you have to read it in the light of what's just been said about obeying and loving God, first and foremost, and then loving your neighbor. So that puts all of this in a very, very different light. So the outcome for Jesus and the Jews of the day They've lost authority. Jesus has gained once again. Crowds are still the great dilemma, and there is more resolve than ever. We must be rid of Jesus. There's no way to handle this but to get rid of him. And notice that Mark, in Mark's gospel, the public ministry of Jesus is ending. You've got verses 38 through 40 where you have the woes. But from that point on, Jesus' ministry is private to his disciples. Chapter 13, he's going to talk about the last days and what, what precedes his, his second coming. Private ministry. Chapter 14, you're heading for the cross. Public ministry has come to an end with the Lord Jesus in this portion of Mark. All right, here's some lessons for us to get. This is really huge, in my opinion. You have to link the scribes with legalism. Do you not? They keep adding law upon law, and because it's case law, every time a new situation comes up, then you have to have a new law, because it's all case law. You can't go by principle. You go by code. Here it is. Legalism is a cheap ineffective substitute for love. A cheap, ineffective substitute for love. Get this. Holiness is not achieved by adding more rules, but by having greater love. See, in their minds, you had to have more rules. Boy, this is one that's very interesting for parents, is it not? (laughs) You know, sometimes, man, I know I've been there. My kids are grown, now they've just got grandkids to worry about, but You know, there's a sense in which you keep saying to yourself, if I just added a few more rules, I could keep the lid on this thing, you know, and and my kids would be holy little, you know, just little cherubs going around. Rules are necessary. I'm not saying they're, they're unnecessary, but my friends, if it does not come from love and it's only duty, they're going to shirk it the first chance they get. Legalism just adds rules. And it adds to duty, and it really compounds itself to where it gets more and more impossible. Hands go up. There's no way. Love works, and it is the antidote for legalism. Legalism is an insult to God. If you say, this is John Piper's territory, and I know I'm treading all over his stuff now, but I'm going to say it anyway because it's true. If you simply follow God because you have to, because it's your duty, that's an affront to God. If you serve him out of love, then that honors God. That glorifies God. Legalism is an insult to God. 
I thought about this. I added this. You won't see it in your notes. I stuffed it in mine because of the uh, worship time. Legalism is the enemy of joy. Have you ever seen a happy legalist? Have you ever seen one? A happy legalist? I haven't. They're all sad-faced, and rightly so. It is love that is linked to joy, my friend. It is love that is linked to joy. It is love in heaven that rejoices at the salvation of lost sinners, not legalism. It is love that is the key to joy. Loving God first and then loving others is our highest priority. Nothing ranks higher. Loving God, loving men. Wow, if that's the standard, we're in a bunch of trouble, aren't we? This is the standard. I mean, it's a higher standard in that sense than just rule keeping. This is the highest standard it can be. That's why Jesus uses this in Luke 10 with, with, a, with a, 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 a scribe. And he's saying, what do I do to get to heaven? And Jesus says, well, what's it say? He says, do that. We can't. This standard, as beautiful as it is, only shows us how much we lack. If it isn't for Jesus, we're in trouble. It's the great standard but one we cannot meet. Love is the motivation for all Christian service. Primary motivation, not duty, love. Now, don't let me make love and duty enemies. We ought to love to do what is our duty. (laughs) But duty alone doesn't work. Galatians chapter 5, by the way, correct your notes, not 14, it's 13. It says, through love, serve one another. Love is the motivation for Christian service. Love is the guiding and governing principle by which we understand and apply the scriptures. See, if you can get the general gist of it, if you can understand the big picture, then the pieces in that picture all fall into place. And the problem with legalism is it can't make those distinctions. So Jesus will say to them, look, is it right to do good or evil on the Sabbath? Is it right if if an ox falls into a well? Are you not going to be the first one to get it out? If your child falls into a well, are you not going to get it out and you're not on the Sabbath? And you're, you're not going to say, oh, it's the Sabbath. I, I can't do that because the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Those guiding principles say to me, there may be exceptions. Like the bread that David and his men ate. As a rule, was it not true that David couldn't eat that bread? He was the king to be and his men were hungry you understand the law in terms of the higher principles if a police car were to whistle down here uh, making noise in front of the the church and he's doing five or ten miles above the speed limit you don't go out there and write him a ticket because you understand there are circumstances in which there may be a higher law that applies 
Oh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Isn't it interesting? Here are all these uh, Corinthians, and, and, and here they have the, the meeting of the church, and they're all kind of fighting with each other and whatever. And Paul says, let me show you the higher way. The higher way is the way of love. When you understand and apply the scriptures according to love, you have fruitful ministry. When you fail to understand and apply the scriptures in the light of love, you're just a clang and cymbal. You just make noise, but no edification. Love is the essence, the distillation of the Old Testament law and its commandments. That's found everywhere, but Matthew twenty-two forty says it clearly. Love fulfills God's commands. Don't you love this? The way in which the New Testament writers pick up on this. Romans chapter 13. Paul says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. And then he says, And the reason is that love seeks the best for your neighbor. See, if you really love your neighbor and you're seeking their best, you don't need 1,500 laws. Because you're going to avoid those things which are detrimental to your neighbor and you're going to do those things which are beneficial to your neighbor because of love. So where love prevails, law is not necessary as the motivation and the guide for what we do. So loving fulfills God's commands. Try this on for size. The coming of Christ to die for sinners is the expression of God's love. It was a couple Sundays ago, John Hodges uh, stood up and and made the comment um, that in John 3.16, did it not say that this is the way God loved the world? I don't know how many of you heard that and chuckled, but that translation out of the Net Bible started here. And the reason it did is because the owner of the Lent Bible was sitting up there, and, and I demonstrated that every time that expression is used, I think it's five times, every time that is used, it means like this, not so much. Every time. So I translated it this way. He calls up the guy's head of the translation and says, change it. And by George, there it is. This is the way God loved the world. He sent Christ. Now, friends, if we reject Christ, we reject God's love. People who say, well, I don't believe that a God of love would send people to hell. A God of love sent Jesus Christ to earth. You want God's love? You take Jesus. You reject Jesus. You reject God's love. It's that simple. Jesus Christ is the expression and the essence of of God's love. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ is the expression of the love of God for men. He is the source and the standard of love. He says, 1 John four nineteen. we love because he first loved us. We don't initiate love, he does. We don't set the standard for love. He does. We imitate his love. The love of God requires exclusive, all-encompassing, total love. He says it is 
all our heart, soul, mind, strength. Well, what part of our nature isn't there? (laughs) God wants all of us. All of us. Every aspect of us. And he wants all of each part. And and I raise the question, are, are, are we not tithing in our mindset toward our obedience to God? Sometimes when the offering plate comes around, we think God gets a percentage of what's back here. <laughs> no, that's not what the New Testament teaches. He owns it all. It's how we use it. But it's his, not ours. We're stewards, folks. We don't own it. He owns it. So, every dimension of our life, 100% of it ought to be God-focused. Not 50, not 75. And what that means is most of us are fallen. I can't speak for you. I'm not doing so well on the percentages. All right. If we love God... Our love should grow. But if it does not, then it is due to neglect. Thinking of Revelation chapter 2. You've lost your first love. Our love for God should grow the more we come to know Him and His love for us. And that's part of what this table's about. Our love for Him ought to grow. Therefore, our service ought to grow. But if we let that flounder, (laughs) then it can grow cold. And it is very easy to lose that first love. And that's one of the reasons I guess I felt so strongly. 35 years ago we started, I think people, one of the things they would have said about Community Bible Chapel is, these people love one another. I hope we love each other more. I hope we love him more you know that we have strongly held forth the priority of teaching God's Word, of knowing it right. But I have to remind you, 1 Corinthians 8 says, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Knowledge alone is not enough. It is only knowledge that grows us and our love for the Lord Jesus. Notice that in the New Testament, Jesus talks about love as a new commandment. Why would that be? I mean, if the Old Testament says love God and love men, what's so new about the command to love in the New Testament? What's new is we are to love as he loved us. Standard, folks, has gone way, way up. In the Old Testament, the Israelites, when, when you take that word neighbor, very interesting what Jesus does with the New Testament. In Leviticus, it's very clear your neighbor is your fellow Israelite. Fellow Israelite. Then Jesus says in uh, Luke chapter 10, the telling of the story, uh, in answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Well, it includes Samaritans. Oops, non-Jews. And in Matthew chapter 5, it includes our enemies. That's who we are to love, our enemies and our neighbors, our our, our non, let's call them non-Christians for now, and our brothers and sisters. It's easy to love, pretty much. (laughs) Most of the time, it's easy to love you guys. But it's tough. Some of those guys out there, 
you know, you have to think about that a bit. But that's the standard that Jesus has set for us. Love our enemies. Love not knowledge is the high water mark of Christian maturity. You notice that text in First Second Peter chapter 1? When all of these things, these disciplines are done, it's love. It's love that's the pinnacle. It's the high water mark of maturity. And so I simply say to you this morning, after 35 years, that motto up there is not only a slogan, it is God's standard for us. And I pray that as the years go on, it'll never cease to be the thing that we adhere to because of our Lord Jesus. Father, thank you for all of these years of your faithfulness to us as a church. Thank you for the love that you have shown us in the person of the Lord Jesus. If there's anyone here that has never embraced your love in Jesus, may they trust in his sacrificial death. And then I pray for all of us who may have known you for a long time. May it be said of us that our love for you is growing and that our love for others is growing as well. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.